Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We left off last week with verse 13. We take up in verse 14. And let me remind you that we have discovered in our study of Revelation that God's view of time is different from ours because in God's mind, everything is present. Because He has decreed everything that comes to pass, uh, everything is present in His mind. It's as good as done. It is already accomplished. So we sometimes have to translate into our chronological understanding of time what is happening in the passage. So let me orient you to this, this chapter 14 chronologically. In verses 1 to 5, what we studied last week, God is uh, describing <clears throat> what has, uh, what has uh, already, what is going to be at the consummation, when everything is complete, when there is no more history, when His whole plan has been accomplished. That's verses 1 through 5. Now, verses 6 through 13, hang on until Advent. We're going to go back to those verses. We're skipping them today. We'll go back to them later. Today, we're studying verses 14 to 20. But in 6 through 13, he is describing where we are today, where we are in history, the redemptive work that God is doing. And then verses 14 to 20 describes Jesus' return. What happens when, what is going to happen when he returns and when he brings, when he redeems his people and when he brings judgment on unbelievers? So 1 through 5 is the total picture of everything, 6 through 13, what is happening right now in history, and 14 to 20, what is going to happen just before the consummation when Jesus returns, brings judgment on unbelievers and redemption to believers. Now, why does he do this? Why does he mix things up? Why didn't he just do everything in order? Because this is our good Father who is writing this word to us, this book to us, to keep us encouraged, to let us know in the midst of the battle that Jesus wins. And if you look back at verse 1, this is what you remember. I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. I've seen something similar in chapter 4. I looked. Whenever, whenever John looks, it is the mark of a major vision. And in chapter 4, John looked, and there the Lamb was sitting on His throne. So God constantly holds this picture in front of us. Look, hang on, come to me, and don't let go. I have you. I'm going to get you through this battle. I'm going to tell you how history is going to end. Jesus wins. He's on the throne. He's standing on Mount Zion. Now, as said, we'll study verses 6 through 13. But today we come to 14 to 20, this awesome, incredible, stunning picture of the return of Jesus, His judgment and redemption. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. He had a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. In 2015, I picked up a book that maybe only an English major would pick up called How Dante Can Save Your Life. How Dante Can Save Your Life, the life-changing wisdom of the world's oldest poem. How Dante Can Save Your Life. It's written by Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher explains in the intro to this book that he was a journalist, but, uh, he, and he left home uh, after high school, went off to university, and left with very strained relationships in his small town in Louisiana. But going off for further education by uh, uh, hanging out with and doing journalism among what his family labeled as sophisticated, there was a, there was a reverse snobbery against him. They cut him off, feeling like he had betrayed them, turning their back on them, looking down on them. That's the way they felt anyway. It's not the way he wanted them to think. When his sister was dying of cancer, he decided to return home and help, uh, help attend to her and, and, and had hopes that he could reconcile with her and with his parents. <clears throat> but his sister died, never forgiving him. His parents and the rest of his family continued to cut him off and exclude him from family gatherings. His heart was broken, and it was affecting his health to the point that he was, he, he was battling with psychosomatic illnesses like chronic mononucleosis. He went to his physician who was very compassionate and, and attentive, and he told him, Rod, if you do not get out of Louisiana, you are going to die. He said, I can't move my family anymore. I've moved them all over the country. I've made this major move here. I cannot, they can't take it. I can't move them anymore. And so the physician in helplessness said, well, then somehow you have to find some inner peace or you're not going to make it. He turned to a psychotherapist who helped him a little bit. He turned to a pastor who helped him a little bit more. But still, he felt like he was dying of a broken heart. 
One day he went into a Barnes and Noble with his wife. She was shopping around the store. He couldn't walk any further, so he sat in the literature section, a section that had never interested him, he said. He was only interested in current events as a reporter, never in past literature. But there he was sitting on the bench. He couldn't walk any farther, and right at his eye level was a book he had never heard of before, written by a man named Dante from the 1300s called The Commedia, or The Divine Comedy. Having bored out of his mind, he had nothing else he could do except pick up the book, and he read these words in the beginning. <clears throat> in the middle of my journey of life, I came to myself in a dark wood where the direct way was lost. That sentence grabbed him. He was in the middle of his life. He felt like he was in a dark wood, and he had no escape. He went on to read, it is hard to speak of how wild, harsh, impenetrable was the wood, so that thinking of it recreates fear. It is scarcely less bitter than death. He was triggered every time he remembered that thought of being lost in the wood. So Dante says in the, in the, in the poem, it's triggered, but he goes on to say, I have to tell it. I have to tell you of the good that I found that I must tell of the other things I saw there. I must tell you of the good that I found, and in so doing, tell you also of the other things I found there. So taking the hand of the great poet Virgil, he takes a tour of hell and then heaven. Rod Dreher could not put that book down. He, he studied to understand every word of it, and he said, Dante, taking me on a tour of hell and then heaven, save my life. Dante says in a letter about that poem, I wrote it that wretched souls might find happiness. I write this poem that wretched souls might find happiness, and happiness is only found in the reordering of our loves. John takes us on the same journey. He writes to us also that wretched souls might have life. We're not studying this book to be afraid. This book was written to us that we might find happiness, and happiness comes in the reordering of loves, and that is can be a, that can be a rugged journey of taking us away, taking our hearts away from all those things that we are attached to and love here, most of all ourselves, and reordering our loves for Christ alone, but in order to jolt us into changing the ordering of love, He sometimes has to scare hell out of us by showing us the judgment that awaits those who will refuse to let go of this world and follow Jesus alone. So we begin in verses 17 to 20 with the judgment. Just before the consummation of all things, Jesus will return and He will send on His right hand the lambs to eternal life, and to the left hand those goats who have refused to follow Jesus, even though many of them will say, we thought we were full. We tried to do a lot of things in your name. 
He says, you never knew me, I never knew you. Now, the first question we face in this passage is, is this a description of, when, when it says that the angel comes and swings his sickle, is he describing one action, there are multiple angels, but is he describing one action of redemption? Is he describing one action of judgment? Or is he describing two actions, one of redemption and one of judgment? Well, it seems if we look at the passage carefully and compare it, you know, we're learning to to exegete what we learn here from the Old Testament imagery that it draws on. It seems there are two events here being described. In verses 14 to 16 is the description of the redemption of God's people. Uh, There the language is uh, that of first fruits and harvest and ripe fruit and reaping, and all of those words from the Old Testament are always applied to the gathering of God's people, gathering in His harvest because He loves them. You can see it in chapter 14, verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God for the Lamb. So, verses 14 to 16, the description of the gathering of God's people, that God's angels will come with the trumpet call of God as Jesus returns and gather up His people, those who are living, those who have died in Him, gather them up, join their souls, to their, their bodies to their souls, and they will forever be with the Lord. But verses 17 to 20 is description, is the description of what happens to the rest to those who are not Jesus' followers, to those who are not disciples, to those who have not taken Christ as their Lord and Savior. Here the sharp sickle is put to the vine. Clusters of grapes are gathered, but they're not gathered in fellowship, not gathered into a loving place, changing the metaphor of the people. They are thrown into the wine press, into the vintage. They are crushed. They are trodden. Just like wines are put into the wine press and they're, they're stomped from the top. They're, they're crushed from the top and, the, and the, their juice is harvested. He says, these who have rebelled against the Lord, who refuse to bend the knee, insisted on following their own way, will be put into the winepress of God's judgment. And so tragic and awful and terrible and violent will be that judgment that their blood will run in the streets. It'll come up to the bridle of horses. It'll last, it'll stream for 184 miles or 1,600 stadia. It'll occur outside the city. They'll be outside the city of God while the people of God will be gathered in the city of God. They will be crushed and killed outside the city as Jesus was, was di- died a cursed death outside the city. It is a violent, awful, terrifying picture of the judgment that is to come on those, maybe you, who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, who are trying to live with one step in the world and one step as a Christian, or who say, I'll get to that later, or who say, I'm going I'm to wait, I'm going to live the way life I want to, and then I'll believe right before the end. 
or you hold your fist up to God and say, I will not believe him because he's angered me, he's disappointed me. Whatever reason is causing you to hold back, this is the judgment that awaits you if you refuse to repent. Dante said this of those who would be judged. These he saw in his tour of hell. I'm sorry you haven't had lunch yet, but here we have to face the terrible picture of the coming judgment. I saw a banner there upon the mist circling and circling. It seemed to scorn all pause. And that banner ran on and still behind it pressed a never-ending rout of souls in pain. These wretches, never born and never dead, ran naked in swarms of wasps and hornet that goaded them the more they fled and made their faces stream with bloody drops of pus and tears that dribbled to their feet to be swallowed there by loathsome worms and maggots. It is the picture of judgment that Jesus himself uses. Not so as to offend you, not just to make you squirm, not to make you afraid, but so that he might save your life. Judgment is announced in time for you to repent. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And as long as you have breath, if you're alive today, then Jesus himself is announcing this word to you, saying, come to me. I don't want this to happen to you, but if you do not turn to me, who knows if you'll have another breath? Come to me. He also announces this to us for our comfort. Oh, my goodness, you say, how in the world can you say that? Because as we have experienced in the last few weeks, and as we have experienced over this past weekend, we are very much aware that there is evil in this world. There is the evil of terrorism. There is the evil of running roughshod over helpless, innocent people. There is the, the evil of torture and dehumanization of women and girls and there is the evil that we face every day of abortion, and there is the evil we face every day of racism, and the evil we face every day of injustice, and, the, and then the evils of cancer and disease. And we look at it, and we are often, we can be overcome, we can be overwhelmed. We look at those images of people fleeing for their lives. We look at those images of people jumping out of the buildings. And we say, Where are we? what can we possibly do? And as Michelle said, we don't know what to do. But when we say our eyes are on you, what do we mean our eyes are on him? It must mean our eyes are on you to make it right, to bring justice, to bring judgment, to bring an end to all evil. Where would we be? How could we keep our sanity if we did not know, as 
believers in Jesus Christ, that there is going to come a day of reckoning. When the Lord King Jesus will stand on Mount Zion and render judgment from His throne on those who refuse to bend the knee, who have done evil, who have perpetrated evil and, and abuse against you individually or against society or on those, those systemic evils like disease. God will throw them all into the lake of fire in hell itself into Hades. Where would, how would we keep our minds? I remember hearing years ago about a man who, in, who was a teacher in an inner city school in Los Angeles <clears throat> high school. And uh, he, he was an English teacher and he, he wanted to teach his kids Dante, but uh, the, uh, the school didn't have it in their curriculum, so he thought, oh, I want to study Dante. I don't care if anybody will study it with me or not. I'm going to offer it as a club, and the only time we can meet is on Saturday mornings. He went to breakfast on Saturday morning. He didn't think anybody would show up, but he was such a, an engaging, contagious teacher, almost his whole class showed up for breakfast with Dante. And the, 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 the interviewer was amazed. Why in the world would these inner city kids want to study an old poem from the 1300s? And one kid said, because my teacher has taught me. And, and, and I see Dante saying that the daily terrors and injustices of my neighborhood, well, I love Dante because he tells me all the bad people and all the bad stuff hurting people will someday get what they deserve. Judgment is good news for the believer. Judgment will be good news for you if it turns you away from trusting in yourself and back to the Lord Jesus. Look at what happens in verses 14 to 16. He sees a very different picture of judgment. I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. That's the picture Daniel has of the Lord Jesus in chapter 7 of his prophecy. He is coming on a cloud. He is like the son of man. He has a golden crown on his head. He comes with a sharp sickle, not to punish, but to redeem. Now, you know, I was a bit humiliated last night. Just before we went to bed, I read this passage with Jackie. And I was pretty proud of myself after years of studying this passage that I figured out that there are two scenes here, one of redemption, one of judgment. I read it to Jackie, expecting to impress her with my erudition. And I read, I said, uh, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud seated on the cloud like one of the son of man with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. And she said, ah, oh, we're going to study about redemption tomorrow. I said, oh, how did you figure that out? How did you know that just by reading it like that? And she said, because I'm a Bible scholar, and rolled over and went to bed. <laughs> well, it also shows what happens when you grow up reading the Bible the way God intends you to read it. It's written to reveal Christ for our salvation. 
And when you read it expecting good news, you hear the good news. And here is the good news of the Son of Man coming for us, and He is coming on a cloud because He's going to rescue us and take us up into that cloud with Him and share His exaltation with us. He's going to transform our bodies, and He comes with a, with a, co- a golden crown with sovereign authority to make His will, to effect His will in the earth. And here's good news too. Even now, this Son of Man with a golden crown is using us to push forward His kingdom. We've seen that over and over, haven't we? That He is including us in it. He's including us in this work. We are included in the wielding of the sickle. We're included in it. I'll show you where. Down where it says the angel from the altar who had authority over fire, verse 18. This angel went to effect the will of God. Where have we seen fire before? In chapter 8, when the Bible says the prayers of the saints come like incense up before the throne of heaven. He puts them into his golden golden, uh, censer, and uh, then the angel takes it with fire to the earth. When you don't know what to do, when you're overwhelmed with the evil of this world, you pray. And God takes those prayers and He translates them into the forward movement of the kingdom. When you don't know what to do, you also witness. And He takes those words and He causes them to rush like fire into other people's souls people are come to Christ. Did you hear it in our prayer? There is a Christian church in Kabul. The gates of hell cannot prevent the forward movement of the kingdom. There is a church in Kabul because of the prayers of the saints. There is a church in Kabul because of the witness of the saints. We are not helpless. We're included in His ingathering of souls with the confidence that at the end, Jesus will win. Frederick Douglass is one of the great heroes of our nation, one of the most brilliant scholars in American history. He was a slave until he was about 20 years old, beaten inhumanely, tortured, But someone along the way taught him the New Testament. Somewhere along the way, he believed in the New Testament. And the New Testament gave him the resolve to fight back and run away. And the resolve in the worldview to know that his hands could be included in the redemptive work of God, and he bravely, along with Harriet Tubman, ran the Underground Railroad. Someone once asked him what it felt like when he finally found his freedom. And he said, there's scarcely anything in my experience about which I could not give a more satisfactory answer. 
A new world is open to me. If life is more than breath and the quick round of blood, I live more in one day than a year of my slave life. It was a time of joyous excitement which words can but tamely describe. Later he wrote in a letter to a friend, I felt as one might feel upon escape from a den of hungry lions. Anguish and grief like darkness and rain may be depicted, but gladness and joy like the rainbow defy the skill of pen or pencil. Why would you live another day in your slavery to sin and self when to live one day in the courts of God, to live one day in the presence of Jesus Christ is better than thousands elsewhere? The judgment can save your life and turn you away from your pathway to destruction and also as a Christian turn you away from despair and despondency and anger. Turn your eyes upon Jesus standing on Mount Zion, the victor. Jesus wins. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Lord Jesus, thank You for revealing to us the end of all things, that You win. I pray, Lord, for those, for anyone here and anyone within the sound of my voice who is yet to bow the knee to Christ, trying to serve two masters, this would be the day of their repentance. And for the rest of us, Lord, who are sometimes overwhelmed and almost despondent with the forces of evil all around us, oh, please, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Turn our eyes to the victor who is going to win and will someday make all things right. In Jesus' name we pray it and God's people said together, Amen.